Welcome to From Betrayal to Breakthrough. I'm Dr. Debbie Silver, and today's guest is Monica Parikh. And Monica is a lawyer, teacher, writer, and healer. Her purpose is to build a love revolution. She gives women practical skills to raise their vibrations so they may attract all of life's riches from a place of higher consciousness. And you're about to get an amazing education on the topic of love, relationships, and marriage. My next guest, Monica, studied this topic so thoroughly using spreadsheets to find patterns in different types of relationships and so much more. If you're wondering why you're struggling your relationship or what to do to avoid repeating something that didn't work for you, you're going to love this conversation. Here's Monica. Okay, everybody, you're going to love this show because I have Monica Parikh on the show with us, and she went from being a lawyer to a love coach. We chatted a little bit before I hit record, and I could tell the conversation was getting so good, so I actually wanted to stop so she could save all the goodness for our time together to share with you. So welcome, Monica. Oh, thanks so much, Debbie. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So let's just talk about uh, that transition there, because it doesn't seem like going from uh, lawyer to, to love coach would be an, an obvious uh, a switch. <laughs> How did that happen? I certainly hadn't planned my life trajectory to be that way, but I'm so glad it kind of has happened that way. It started um, in about 11 years ago. My ex-husband suddenly walked out on me without any explanation at all, and I never saw him again. Um, and he and I had been together for 10 years. So that was a major trauma in my life that I had never experienced before. And as I was searching for answers and um, also testing psychological theories about dating, I started to realize that not only was this work exceptionally important to bring to a larger audience, but no one was really teaching it. So at that point, um, what had happened was, you know, I was undergoing psychoanalysis to heal the trauma of my marriage and to understand the root causes, not only of why my marriage didn't work, but why generally marriage is failing in the United States and also globally. And um, at that time, which was 2008 to about 2012, I was testing psychological dating theory, and I had um, dated about 70 men over a four and a half year span Whoa. of time. And I was um, keeping Excel spreadsheets. And how my business started in the very nascent stages was that um, a lot of my girlfriends were like, this is super interesting, you should write about it. And I was really talking about the psychology of healthy love and relationships and the things that you need to know just from a dating perspective. And at that point, I started getting a following. Um, and then I went into a relationship. Well, and even and, before you get there, I just think it's so interesting to have spreadsheets on dating. I, what, did they know that you were doing this? They absolutely did not know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if they knew, they wouldn't have agreed for us to go out. They didn't know. And it was just, you know what it was? It was an exploration of myself. I was trying to figure out, you know, before I had gotten married, I had barely dated. I went to an all-girls high school, and I was exceptionally nerdy. Um, I hadn't dated a lot, and so I was trying to understand me and what I liked and what I was attracted to. And, you know, I was, I was, I was an exploration of myself, really. Mm. So that was the nascent stages, anyway. So interesting. And then, and then through this exploration, 
what did you find patterns with the types of people you were dating? I mean, what kind of emerged from the data? Well, I mean, the biggest thing was, you know, certainly the behaviors that create healthy dynamics and relationships were starting to emerge. And of course, I was noticing patterns in myself. But, um, and, you know, it's a great question. You know, what ended up happening was I got into a relationship in 2012 that ended up breaking up in 2016. And that relationship's breakup was almost more devastating than the end of my marriage. And at that point, I really went into a lot deeper psychological work um, in terms of healing trauma from my childhood and understanding patterns of my own attachment. And as I started going deeper and deeper, then I started noticing that there was, you know, this probably global trend um, of people not attaching properly. And, um, and also as women that we were changing, you know, we were becoming much more educated, much more financially secure. But in many ways, the ways that we were showing up in relationships, we didn't have a voice, we weren't setting boundaries, and that the entire, um, the entire rubric of dating was changing dramatically because of apps and social media. And they were almost feeding a narcissistic mindset in men. So I really started to like see things completely differently. And in a, in a lot of ways, what I believe is that, and very few people are talking about, is that these apps are really fueling this narcissism. Mm. And women, maybe under the guise of feminism, don't realize how they're kind of fueling what I see as a, as a real epidemic. And I want, there are so many things you said I want to dive into. How are the apps fueling narcissism? I think that's so interesting. Well, you know, for one thing, they're creating almost an immediacy of, you know, where it's basically like you meet somebody, you can hook up. When it doesn't work out, you just swipe again. Mm -hmm. And that kind of fungibility where you can throw people out very rapidly, um, I think it's exceptionally devastating to the psyche. A lot of people are ghosting, you know, so they're not even giving proper closure to another person, which creates a lot of trauma. Um, and then in addition, I think that, you know, when a lot of times women maybe who have more anxious attachment styles are put in a field where they're competing with a lot of women, what ends up happening is, you know, they often will maybe have sex early. They don't even want to have sex. They are doing it to please this person. And, you know, the typical rituals of courtship where you would kind of assess who this person is are being upended completely. And I think it's exceptionally dangerous for building um, healthy and stable relationships. Hmm. And, you know, it just immediately I'm thinking of these dating, like the dating shows, you know, The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, these kinds of things where you're just, it's this finite period of time and all of this magic is supposed to happen. And it just seems so incredibly unrealistic and, and forced and the time compressed to create something that should, like you said, just take a little more time for it to emerge and evolve. I mean, I completely agree with you. And, you know, I think that one of the things that's really dangerous is that America has really fueled the wedding industry. So we're so socialized for marriage, for weddings, but we're not really socialized for marriage. And Debbie, I'm confident that, you know, with your work, you see it all the time. You know, a marriage takes so many skill sets from the de-escalation of conflict, the setting of boundaries, the breaking of codependencies, the, you know, interdependency 
finding your unique life purpose. And so, you know, when I started building my business and asking these deeper questions, if, you know, you were going to build a modern marriage, what I realized was that you needed actually a robust skill set. You needed a huge toolbox and that conventional education wasn't teaching it. And, you know, typically those conversations are reserved for a psychotherapist's office or, you know, with your work with a coach. And I wanted to demystify a lot of that. I wanted to pull those conversations out of closed rooms and, you know, bring them into the general public. I, I love the work that you're doing. And you just, um, you said something that reminds me of it. It was Gary Zukov had a book, uh, not Seat of the Soul. It was uh, maybe Sacred Partnerships, something like that. Spiritual Partnerships, I think it was. Yeah. And I remember him talking about how it's almost like we go into our first marriage, uh, of course, love, but safety, security, all of that. And then we get divorced. Many people get divorced. And then their next marriage is, is more along the lines of designed to help each other grow. It's such, it has such a different almost foundation. And you can see how with that insight, with that awareness, you're creating something very different. I, I want to get back to, because you talked about, uh, you mentioned attachment attachment theories and stuff like that. Can you share a little bit about that just so the audience can maybe possibly see themselves as uh, you know, within one of those types of attachment and, and maybe where it's working for them and maybe where it's not? Yeah. So attachment, you know, is really that we learn to love from our parents. And if our parents are not psychologically healthy or if there's dysfunctional behaviors in the family, and oftentimes those dysfunctional behaviors are generational patterns, we basically mimic what we see. And we can be unconscious, meaning that that's so normalized for us, you know, because we don't have the opportunity to be raised in multiple households and have a comparison. So we only know what we experience and we can fall into certain patterns of behavior that are actually contrary to healthy love relationships. So, you know, the biggest ones that I see in my practice are that um, women can be exceptionally anxious. And if they attach or they pull in an avoidant partner, what typically will happen is there's going to be a lot of conflict in that relationship where oftentimes, you know, kind of the behaviors that I was talking about with dating online, where maybe a woman is engaging in behavior sexually or emotionally that she doesn't even want to engage in, but she's doing it to please her partner. And at the same time, she has a certain neediness, you know, a certain need to cling to him. And that's going to trigger his avoidant issues and make him run. And so that's kind of where I see it the most. And if, if you don't know your patterns of behavior, and you don't work with someone, you know, who can help you at least develop an awareness and begin to heal them, what ends up happening is you draw the same partner over and over and over and because over again. it's familiar, it's right? It's familiar. You're going back, you know, your subconscious is trying to find your parent all over again to wound you in the same way as you were wounded as a child. And what's supposed to happen is that when you're in enough pain, you begin to do the deep inner work to heal so that you can draw in something completely different. Um, but you know, what I find, so my practice is primarily consisting of women who are exceptionally high performers, 
you know, they're professors, they're CEOs, they're psychologists, they're psychotherapists, and many of them have not done that deep work on themselves. So they may not even, even though, you know, they're achieving, they've got great jobs and big careers, they're asking themselves why they're not able to achieve in the space of relationships. And, you know, it's, I think, because it's very hard to develop awareness unless you have sort of an outside professional helping you mine through some of these issues. And I'll tell you, just even in, in the betrayal world, it's almost, I see this so often, because of a traumatic experience, that's what, what gives us uh, just the incentive to open, you know, to just be willing to look at these things too. Because it's almost like we're, we're walking around and, and we don't, this is just, we're just trying to get through our day, right? So we may be a little numb, maybe a little sleepwalking a bit, and then something happens and it's the greatest catalyst to change because it forces us to wake up and say, hey, what the heck, you know, what can I do differently? What isn't working? What needs to change here? Because I don't like what I'm seeing. Well, I think that you just hit the nail on the head, you know, because I've had um, a decent amount of trauma in my life and I've always saw, seen it as a catalyst for me to take my game up to the next level. But that work is hard. It's hard. It's expensive. You have to find the right practitioners. And the, the fork in the road that I often see is that, you know, when a catalyst like that happens, you have the subset who sees it as the catalyst to move their game to the next level and rebuild a new normal that is far better than what came before. You know, the thing I always say to my clients is you want to look at that painful experience and say, thank God that happened. You know, if that didn't happen, then I would not have built all this. But a lot of times I think what happens is we're trained in society to be very outward fo focused as opposed to inward focused. And so, you know, it's unless you have that training, you know, that maybe psychotherapeutic training, it's very hard to say, what did I do to bring this on myself and what do I need to change? And without doing that work, you get stuck in that trauma, right? And your life doesn't change. And you really, you know, are mired in a sense of deep unworthiness and deep unhappiness that isn't, it's not necessary to sit there. You know, you can really have a new narrative and new chapters that open that are very exciting. I love that you're bringing this up because, I mean, my listeners know that is, that is all that I talk about where we're using this trauma, this pain, this, this negative experience to create as a springboard, as a launch pad to create something wonderful that you'd have no incentive or motivation to create had that experience not happened. That's not saying it's not deeply painful. That's not saying there's a tremendous amount of work, but yes, it takes a lot to, to move through. And here's also where what I see so many people are running towards food, drugs, alcohol, work, TV, keeping busy, something, anything to avoid. And we hear this in my community all the time, face it, feel it, heal it. It's when we face it, when we feel it, that's when we're willing to do the work to move through it. So what does, what does someone do? So let's say they realize, my gosh, you know what? I've been uh, needy and I've been doing things I don't want to do to overcompensate for that. And then here's this avoidant person. What, what's the, the awareness process and then the change. What do you see? I mean, so many things, right? Um, you know, I think first you have to unpack the story of the actual trauma. 
So, you know, for me, let's just talk about my, the ending of my marriage. You know, I had a narrative and the narrative was that this person had abandoned me. He had walked out on me and he, and he did, he inflicted a huge trauma on me. But as I started to really unpack that story and that took, you know, that took a long time. So I'm not saying that that was um, a change that happened overnight. I could see to your point how I had entered that marriage really kind of asleep. And as I began to unpack that story, I really could see how that marriage was never on a firm foundation and that it really didn't have the longevity. Like it was never going to go anywhere and it wasn't going to further either of our spiritual growth or emotional growth. It was going to keep us both exceptionally complacent. So in a way, him leaving was the beginning of my road of really like being an awakened woman and, and really like stepping into my power. So I think first you have to unpack that narrative and really start to tell yourself the truth, you know, and it takes from my perspective, you know, I'm, my goal is to build very conscious relationships for my clients and I'm doing it consistently with a global audience. And the thing is, is, you know, I think that first you have to own your story. And then the second thing you have to do is you have to understand your childhood in a really deep level. You have to understand both the good and the bad of your mother and father. And also, you know, something we almost never talk about in American society at all is you have to individuate from your family of origin, meaning you have to completely psychologically separate from these people and decide which traits and characteristics you're going to carry on, which generational patterns you think are useful and you're going to carry on, and which ones you're not. And, you know, with my client base, a lot of times what I see is that, you know, my clients are raised in families where feelings are never spoken about. And if there's something bad happening, everyone puts their head down and no one speaks about it, or there's a complete avoidance of conflict. Conflict is seen as very bad. And, you know, I even see it as almost, um, we have to grow ourselves up where we start to see conflict as a natural process that happens in relationships. And if both people develop the skills of real communication, then basically you're aligning needs between two parties and you're able to like broker new understandings. But all of that is skill building from my perspective. And, you know, um, so what I've done with my business is I've built a curriculum and the curriculum spans about nine months. And what it's, what I aim to do is basically mimic the psychotherapeutic process, but make it quicker and faster so that we're having these conversations. And as I start to have this conversation with people and they start to connect the dots, they're like, oh my God, you know, why isn't everybody teaching this? And I find that the more we can demystify some of these conversations and grow ourselves up and actually build the skills, you know, you not only have more conscious partnerships, but you're building a model for children. You know, children need to be raised in stable democratic societies, in stable homes. They need to see adults disagreeing, but disagreeing without escalating conflict, with the de-escalation of conflict. You know, and as someone who practiced law for 20 years, what I saw was that we live in a very litigious society where we're always ramping conflict up and or 
you make me mad and I'm never going to speak to you again, which is, it's, it's, it's maddening, you know, because what we're doing is we're creating chaos consistently. And we're like, you know, frog in the frogs in the boiling water, the, the pot keeps getting hotter and we keep on adjusting ourselves to deal with more and more and more madness. And really, if you put children first and you say like, you know what, the things that those kids learn in their families will impact their ability to love for the rest of their lives, will impact their ability to connect with another person and experience what I think is, I mean, and what studies have shown is the most important thing in, in your life's journey of happiness is your ability to create relationships that are healthy. You know, so we have to change. <laughs> You're so right. I love everything you said. And, and what's so interesting is, I mean, think about it. Anybody who's had any conflict with someone and they brought it up and they, they spoke about it, there's an increased level of intimacy. They're, they're closer. They've grown. They understand each other better. So it's not necessarily a negative thing. And, and, and also the other thing you said, you know, it's so true. Just because you learn something doesn't mean it's right and doesn't mean you have to continue it. You know, it reminds me of that story. I remember hearing a story about, uh, I, and I, everybody knows I botch up stories and quotes, but this is the general idea. So somebody was, I think there was a, a mom and she was uh, baking, a, she was baking a turkey and she, she cut off the, the ends of the turkey. And then, and then she, um, so that's just what she did. And then the daughter was watching and said, well, why do you do that? Well, that's what my mother did. So then she asked the grandma and said, well, why do you do that? And it turned out, well, that was the size of the pan. You know, that was the pan they had. So we just go along with things and it's great to question. And if they don't serve, we don't need to keep them going. So it's such, such a great opportunity to change what's not working. And even in my own experience with, with some things that I learned from my, from my own family, um, I almost acted like I was dyslexic because a message would be given to me and it was an instinct to then just sort of regurgitate it to my kids. But I said, you know what, if I didn't like how it felt to me, well, let me just kind of unjumble it in my head and make it come out a little bit differently. And it's a great opportunity to change it for the next generation. You're so right. Yeah. Well, I think that, don't you think that Debbie, part of the issue is that we feel like it's a betrayal of our parents right? It's a betrayal of their, you know, who we see them as in our lives, which is teachers and authority figures. You know, interestingly, my mother, who's was a feminist far ahead of her time, but she could see the own issues in her marriage. My parents were married for 50 years and until my father passed away a couple years ago. And when I was growing up, you know, one of the key messages my mother always told me is always get an education, make your own money, don't depend on a man. And my mother used to say, don't be like me. And I just could not understand, I didn't understand, I literally could not understand what she was talking about. And, you know, long story short, you know, a couple years ago, my mother and I had a conversation where finally I had put all the puzzle pieces of the psychology together. And I said to my mother, I said, okay, you know, the next time you give an instruction, just be a little more detailed so that I really can understand what you mean. But I, even though she was trying to deliver a message to me, I just couldn't understand. And, you know, our neural pathways and our brains are so hardwired, right? And 
that's epigenetics. You know, generationally, we're wired, like you're saying, to cut the end of the turkey off, right? And, you know, to undo those patterns of behavior and to basically wake up to the pattern, that's hard work to do. That's not easy work to do, which is why, you know, I think a big part of my message is also let's destigmatize emotional and mental health care. Let's see it the same way we see, you know, preventative medicine. Let's see it as normal, healthy, like something that everyone should be engaging in. Let's see it as, you know, this is how we basically tend to and take care of long-term relationships, especially the relationship we have with ourselves. It's so important. And it's, it's, I think one of the most important things is to be open to understanding that, you know what, maybe we were served something and it doesn't necessarily work for us. And like you said, being an adult, the beauty of being an adult is we could change whatever doesn't work, but we have to be uh, willing to do that. And then just have the awareness enough to, to, to know what's driving our behaviors. You know, it's not necessarily the actual behavior, but what drove the behavior. So what's behind it? And what, what's behind it is some kind of belief. Well, had that belief get there? Someone told us something and we took over. So, you know, it's as simple as we were young and maybe we had a bad day and mom gave us ice cream and we grow up and we think that that's the remedy. So that's what we do. It could be something as simple as oh, yeah. that. But we can't change what we're not aware of. And it sounds like what you're saying is a huge call uh, for greater awareness and then working on what's no longer serving. And, and there's something so wonderful about that because I think so many people feel so hardwired and that's just the way it is. And then of course, then they just keep reliving that story and have more of the same types of relationships because it's so familiar and they just feel that they're just, you know, on some conveyor belt, taking them from one end of life to the other. And it's so much more than that. So, so give us some suggestions about some, I'm just, I'm always trying to get into the minds of my listener right now. Here she is saying, holy smokes, I can't believe I've been doing this for this long. I am awake. I want to do things differently. What do they do now? I think the first thing you do is you find um, somebody you really trust who's a practitioner, you know, either it could be a therapist, it could be a coach, it could be some kind of personal transformation program. And you find someone that um, is speaking your language that seems really down to earth and real. And you say that I'm going to spend some time and energy on myself. And I'm not going to rush it. I'm going to see this as an investment in myself the same way I would a college education um, or a graduate degree. And I'm going to spend some time learning. You know, and that I think is, you know, when I look at my life and, you know, I went to Ivy League schools and I have, you know, a graduate degree, none of that ever compared to the money that I spent working with coaches and psychologists. And the return on the investment of that was huge for me. So I think that's first. I think the second thing is that we need to undo certain narratives in our society. You know, one of the messages we get as women is that our worth is really based on if we have someone standing beside us, you know, and I would like the narrative to turn that 
when we're healthy and we're able to call someone healthy into our lives who forward our spiritual and emotional progress and really support us and are committed to the work of relationship, then we should be in relationship. But absent that, you know, we can find our life purpose, we can build businesses, we can travel, we can have children, we can, you know, tend to gardens. There are so many beautiful things in the world that we can do as women. And a lot of times what I see is, you know, when a, a relationship breaks down, the person throws their hands up in the air and they're like, I have no reason to live. And I'm like, you know, a relationship is wonderful and it teaches you amazing things about yourself. But I tell my, my clients, a relationship should be 20% of your life. And you should have 80% of your pie that's so fulfilling and rich that when that 20% piece goes away, you still have 80% that you are exceptionally excited about and vibrant about. And, you know, the last thing I would say is I would also like to kill this messaging that as women age, you know, we become less vital because I think the opposite is true. I think we get sexier. I think we get you know, more empowered, more energetic, more vibrant, we can live outrageously happy lives because we've learned the lessons and we don't have to repeat them and we can create new, new adventures and new excitement for ourselves. And, you know, sometimes I think the biggest, the biggest form of activism is being an exceptionally happy, forgiving, kind, purpose-driven woman who's really using her gifts to better the world, like you're doing, Debbie, you know, and like I'm trying to do. Absolutely. I mean, you just nailed it. And in talking about relationships, I think it's so crucial to give ourselves the opportunity to have a better relationship with ourselves. And that means doing what's in our best interest, what, what works for us, and what we would tell any of our other, what we'd suggest to any of our other friends. If we were nearly as kind to ourselves as we were to others, it would just be amazing. Monica, this was so helpful. Where can we uh, go to learn more about you? You can go to my website, which is www.schooloflovenyc.com. Um, even though I'm based in New York, I work with a global audience. So School of Love NYC and just drop me a note and come and take my programs. Uh, Monica, I want to thank you so much for your time, your attention. I know everybody got so much out of what you shared today. I hope so. Thank you so much, Debbie, for having me on your show. I don't know about you, but I thought Monica dropped some amazing truth bombs about how dating apps fuel narcissism, attachment styles, the huge differences between how we prepare for a wedding versus a marriage, and so much more. Stay in touch with Monica by going to schooloflovenyc.com, and we'll have all of her information in the show notes at thepbtinstitute.com forward slash podcast. Here's my biggest takeaway. In order to stop repeating the same types of relationships, we need to own our story, understand how what we learned in childhood created the behaviors we have now, individuate from our fam family of origin, meaning we don't have to own the parts that don't work for us. Then we need to undo certain narratives that are keeping us stuck. If you're stuck, we can help. If you're struggling with symptoms, be sure to take the post-betrayal syndrome quiz to see what may be lingering for you at thepbtinstitute.com forward slash quiz. And have you checked out the PBT Institute membership community? 
Imagine everything you'd ever need to become your physical, mental, emotional best. Community, support, certified coaches and practitioners you can schedule time with, daily classes on all kinds of interesting topics, curated experts teaching advanced strategies in the areas of health, mindset, spirituality, personal development. Imagine the most friendly, welcoming, and supportive place to become your best all online. Nothing like this exists, and I'm so excited to welcome you. Just go to thepbtinstitute.com forward slash join to learn more. Thanks for listening. Can't wait to be with you next time, and here's to your breakthrough. (music) 